and welcome to Challenges That Change Us, the podcast where we talk to our guests about how their challenges have impacted them today and how they overcame them. Whether you are someone that feels like you are thriving right now, trudging through the mud or somewhere in between, this podcast is designed to give you practical advice, profound insight into your own experience and inspire you to embrace your life. My name is Ali Flynn, the co-founder and CEO of Tri Altitude Performance, and I will be your host. It's time to buckle up your seatbelts and let's get this ball rolling. Welcome back, everyone, to Challenges That Change Us. I hope you're having a fabulous week. I want to introduce you all to Anna, a wife and a mother of three beautiful children who lives up in the Northern Territory in Australia. For anyone that does not know the Territory, it is a really unique place. I lived up there for a little while working for Paspaley Pearls. They are the rarest and most valuable pearls in the world. When we were up there, we used to do two weeks at sea and one week on land. And where the boats were, it was just the most magnificent part of this country. The thing I love the most, though, were the animals. And we have a few little croc stories for you in this episode today. But before we get into our conversation, I want to let you know that this is a story of resilience, strength, courage, and survival. Anna has lived our life. From a young age, she started losing people she loved and cared for. By her teenage years, she had been abused by an adult who was meant to take care of her. I want to put a really big trigger warning, bigger than normal on this episode. We dive deep into the trauma. I want you to keep yourself safe. I will name most of the triggers we talk to so you can decide if this is the right episode for you today. If not, we will see you next week when we talk about menopause, a great episode for women and men to listen to. Anna and I today talk about losing a parent. We talk about suicide and suicide ideations, childhood sexual assault, depression and anxiety, postnatal depression, and the process of going to the police. Some of the stories are in-depth, more in-depth than we usually go into in this podcast. If you want to talk to someone at any point throughout the episode, call Lifeline on 131114 or text Lifeline on 0477 131114. These services are available 24 hours a day, 365 days of the year. We will also pop resource links in the show notes, such as Bravehearts, for anyone that is looking for some support. There is also, at the end of this episode, I'm doing a little breathwork exercise for everyone. This is a bit of a bonus, but it's also there to help ground you after listening. So let me introduce you to Anna. Welcome, Anna, to Challenges That Change Us. Thank you for giving up your time today and coming on our show. Thank you, Ali, for having me. Anna, I really love to start the podcast with asking our guests if there's an animal that best describes them and what animal is that and why? (laughs) Well, I have thought about this a lot, especially over the last couple of weeks. And I was initially going to say a duck because they're calm on the surface and paddling like mad underneath the water, but have since changed my mind to most definitely a guinea fowl. Ooh, what is it about a guinea fowl? Well, they're quite happy just poking around their own little block doing their thing, but 
when there's a threat or when there's someone comes in to upset their little existence, they go absolutely mental. Can you do the sound for us for anyone that – because they're, they're, they're oh, no. training animals. <laughs> no. <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> Come on, come on. Just give us a taste. (laughs) I do know, I do know though that the girls, they have the come back call. So they're the ones that say, come back, come back. Whereas the men just, you know, make noise. Yeah. For anyone that hasn't heard a guinea fowl, my God, they are really squawky and they're, some people think they're beautiful. I love their feathers, but they're actually really ugly. Like if we call it for oh, what it is, totally. they're, they're actually a pretty ugly bird other than the spotty feathers and they just have this screeching sound, but they are really cool and different. They are very, very different. Yeah. Hopeless mothers. We've got one that's got two little keats at the moment and they're just, oh, she's hopeless, but you know, she tries her best and that's a bit like me too, I suppose. And you're up in the Territory in Australia. I am. Yes, I am. The best part of the world. We're at Humpty Doo, which is the best named town in the world. <laughs> Who wouldn't want to live at Humpty Doo? And has the best pub in the world. Oh, absolutely. World famous. <laughs> <laughs> so tell us a little, I've been up there traveling, but a lot of our listeners won't have ever been up that way in that part of Australia. Tell us a little bit about what it's like up there. So we're about 40, 50 Ks out of Darwin. It's just beautiful. It's just the bush. It's lovely. It's laid back. It's um, got such a strong little sense of community. Very hot in the dry season. The build-up, which we're in at the moment and leading into the wet season, is absolutely horrendous, but we love it. What sort of temps are you getting at the moment? It's not too hot. It's probably only about 34, 35, 36 degrees, but humidity sort of sits at about 94 to 95%. And that mid-morning when the dew starts rising, it is just brutal. It's Mm. really brutal. Well, you're actually our first guest that we've had on where I've let you keep the air con on. So, for the audience, it's one of my first questions to the guests is like, can you turn your air con off? But I was like, I'm not going to ask someone up in Darwin at this time of the year to turn their air con off for my podcast. No, no, no. I'm sorry. Not negotiable. And there's some pretty crazy animals up there. That's what I love about the Territory, the crocodiles, the buffalo, the, you know, the Mickey bulls. Like, Yeah, yeah, it is just, it's completely wild. It's incredible. The crocodiles up here are insane, insane. Mm. And for everyone that you see, there's like a 10 under the water that you can't see. It's amazing. Yeah. And that's what's so cool about them is how they come up and you don't know they're there and then all of a sudden there's just a crocodile. Yeah. Yep. Yep. It's quite unnerving at times as well. Mm. Everyone up here is completely aware that you do not go into any water unless it's chlorinated. So the kids are are very, very aware that they don't stand too close to the edge or anything like that because they're just, you just never know. You just never know where they are. Mm, I could sit on here and spend the hour talking about the croc stories. Oh, me too. <laughs> that is not why we brought you on as much as I would love, 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 because they are just such a fascinating creature. Oh, they're incredible. We have quite a big story today that we're going to be talking about. I know we we actually, for the audience, we actually came on and, and started a podcast, but our tech didn't work. So we've had to come back a couple of weeks later and go again. And, you know, I think it was really good because it gave both of us a bit of time to kind of sit back and reflect and think and you know we've decided today that we'll probably start at the beginning like we'll go right back to when you were a little girl and you lost your dad when you were only five years old yeah yep so I grew up in a little town in southwest Queensland called Mitchell 
And it was just a, you know, idyllic little childhood, I suppose. Mum and dad had a 10-acre block just on the outskirts of town and right on the edge of the Maranoa River. So, we were pretty free-range kids. It was a nice little childhood. Dad, he suffered a massive heart attack one night and just never woke up. So, he was 35. Mum was only 30. I was five. My brother was two and my sister was nine months old. Oh, my God. I'm so sorry. Yeah, thank you. That's so young. Yeah, it really was. All of us were really, really young. And it was hard because I still had the memories of Dad. I mean, I was was obviously five. I, I was two days into grade one when it happened. Australia Day. So back then Australia Day wasn't a public holiday. So mum had my little my little shirt with the Sydney Harbour on it and all laid out ready to go. And I remember coming out of my bedroom that morning and I hadn't didn't know what had happened, but the world had seemed to have tilted on its axis. It was just something was out of whack and a friend was there, had come to pick us kids up to just to take us away. And my little sister, so they didn't have a car seat in their car, so Emily's sitting on the front seat of the car and I just remember this little baby. She just kept on toppling over. And then, yeah, I came home probably a couple of hours later and my grandfather was there and I was so excited because I just loved my hoy. That's what I called him was hoy. And I was just, yeah, super pumped to see him there. And, yeah, mum told us that dad died and that was it. I don't even know how you process that as a five-year-old walking in the world, you know. It's like what do those words even mean when you get like if even being on a farm and experiencing death within animals, it's not the same as when they say that, you know, someone that you love so dearly and someone so close to you is not going to be coming back anymore. Yeah. Yeah, it was – well, I can't really remember too much about it. Us kids didn't go to the funeral. Mum didn't want us to be there. But I remember – the wake or the yeah the wake was held at our house and I kicked my toe and it was bleeding and you know typical five-year-old reaction and I'm running up the stairs to go inside and I could see all these people gathered in little clumps together and they were all joking and laughing and I couldn't work out why they were why they were doing that my dad had just died right why are you smiling why, why are you happy but it was probably because they were celebrating his life, not – they weren't being vindictive or anything like that. I couldn't even tell you what they were talking about. But, yeah, it was really hard to process. Yeah, and I imagine for your siblings, the mem- like they would find it hard to even have memories of your dad because they were so young. Yeah, no, neither of them have memories of dad. I mean, Emily was still a baby. Huey only being about two a little bit older, he doesn't have any either. And I've only got a few as well. But I remember him he was as being just so kind. He was so kind. Yeah, but no, not much else. Oh, and then what did those next few years look like, Anna? Did you find that your whole life had changed for the next few months or for the few years? Or I don't have much memory of that. My mum actually is doing a massive clean out of her house at the moment. She bought up a school book of mine 
and it's from grade one and the first page is an Australian flag that we've coloured in. So it was obviously from my first or second day of school. The second page was a picture of my family, you know, dad, mum, brother, sister, happy, all smiling. And then the following page was other little drawings that I had done and one of them was a picture of mum sitting on a chair with my sister on her lap and me standing there with tears running down my face and the little blurb was I miss out on all the cuddles and it was date stamped it was date stamped the 2nd of February so life sort of continued on as per usual for us kids I don't think mum knew how to deal with her own grief so therefore she definitely couldn't help me deal with mine life just continued and you know that's something that I'm hearing a lot on this podcast like even that long ago there was no information out there you know now you can jump on google if you go through something and be like how do I support my children or how do I make my way through this and it might not be right for you but at least you can get some ideas but I think back then no one knew and to lose your husband when you're 30 and to have three kids under five like you know, like you're just trying to get by day by day by day. 100%. And grieve in that process. 100%. So there was a lot of mornings where I would have to go and wake mum up for her to take me to school or, you know, I'd, I'd making my own lunches most days. And while it was tough, I think it has taught me a lot. Oh, it's definitely taught me how to be independent. It's definitely taught me how to be strong. But yeah, it was it was a little bit tough, a little bit tough. Do you, Anna, feel like there was a time in your life you were able to grieve, you know, because it sounds like at that age you just had to kind of soldier on. Have you found a spot yeah. that you've been able to process it? I think over the years, by the time I was sort of 14, I'd lost, so I'd lost dad, I'd lost a grandmother, a grandfather and another grandfather. So Death was very, I don't want to say a common occurrence in my life, but... But real. You were facing it. There was a lot of it. (laughs) There was Mm -hmm. a lot of it. And I don't know if I grieved back then the way I would grieve now, but it's not something that you ever get over, but you can, you just get on with it. Mm. You just, yeah. Yeah, it's tricky. And do you think that there are some lessons or some things that you've taken away when you reflect back on that time? Because I know we're going to be talking about some other things today, but I'm just wondering about this. You know, is there are there things you think about when you think back to that time? Oh, absolutely. Just, you know, if you, God forbid you're ever in that situation, just cuddle your kids. Mm. Just hug them and talk to them about you know, those little snippets of memories that they might have. Mum didn't do that with me. So anything that I did have has sort of faded away over time. Mm. I would give anything to have just had those memories locked in. Mm. So, yeah, just – and let your kids – let your kids grieve. Let them be angry. Let them cry. You know, let them take the lead in how they want to be. And – not be afraid that the kids are going to grieve. I think so often as parents, I'm a parent myself, and so often we want to protect our children and and parents will not talk around the grief because they're going to be worried that they're going to be bringing it up for the children. Yeah, but it is so important. It is – and everyone's going to go eventually. Mm. 
we think we're doing the right thing by protecting our kids from the hurt and the pain, but I think in the long run that makes it much more difficult for them in dealing with their emotions. Mm. Yeah, I think grief, unfortunately, is part of everyone's going to be part of everyone's life, and by sweeping it away and pretending it's not there, then it's just going to cause many more problems in the long run. And there's a beautiful podcast that we did with Feel the Magic, Christy and James, and they have, you know, that's something that would have been wonderful for you back then, Anna. They they have a lot of information on working with kids around grief and they have camps around grief and they teach parents and schools and teachers how to deal with kids that are grieving because not even the teachers know, right? Like, you know, no, no one kind of everyone tiptoes, or not everyone, but there have been times and stories where you hear that everyone tiptoes around, but really sometimes you need to kind of face it head on. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I know mum sort of tells a story that my brother quite often would go down to Toowoomba to our grandparents and would spend sort of two or three weeks at a time down there. And would come back and just be an absolute little brat because he'd been allowed to get away with everything and there'd been no no structure, no control. And that makes it hard, made it hard on mum as well. So it's tricky. It's very tricky. And Anna, what did the next sort of chapter in the next few years look like for you throughout your life? I was very involved at school. So I used to do all the music programs. I used to play the violin and the cello. Very involved in netball. Our little netball team was undefeated until under 12s. Thank you very much. (laughs) Memories. (laughs) Memories. Important memories. But I remember one day after a music performance in Roma, we'd been at the cultural centre there, mum came home with a bunch of flowers. And where did you get those from, mum? Oh, a man gave them to me. And I remember being happy and smiling and, oh, mum's got a boyfriend. And, yeah, for the first time in a long time, mum was happy. She was happy. So that was nice to see. Yeah. As we got to know this person, we got to know his family as well. So he had two sons. So... This person, he moved over to a property just down north of Mitchell with his two sons and the relationship with mum continued and we were really happy. We were spending weekends riding motorbikes and horses and swimming in the dam and pretty feral. We got ourselves into a fair bit of mischief, but it was always, you know, harmless and, and a lot of fun. You know, I was pumped. I had two extra almost brothers you know we fought like family we would spend hours and hours playing spotlight of an evening and yeah life was good when you've spent so much of your formative years losing people in your world you know to gain people into your world can feel really amazing oh absolutely absolutely and to see see mum happy was just it was it was lovely Mm. it was really good yeah so we spent a lot of time there. We'd quite often be out there, you know, four or five nights a week and mum would be bringing us into school the next morning or, you know, vice versa. He'd come and stay with us with the boys. But, yeah, it sort of all, all changed one night. He came into my bedroom and he shut the door. So I probably should preface this by adding that, you know, I'm of the generation where we were told that, you give someone a kiss hello or a kiss goodbye or you hug them or, you know, there wasn't much, I suppose, autonomy around a child's body. 
to show respect, that's that's what you were taught. Mm. So this one night he came into my room to say goodnight, which happened quite regularly. However, that night he shut the door and I immediately knew that that wasn't right. I could hear all the other kids out in the other bedrooms or still, you know, yahooing and carrying on, but he'd shut the door to my room and he came and sat on my bed. And then he he kissed me on the lips. I'm a 10-year-old little girl, same age that my little girl is now, and he stuck his tongue in my mouth. I reacted quite strongly. I pushed him away and, oh, yuck. And with that, he sort of stood up and walked out of the room. My my bed sort of was up against the wall and mum's bed next door was up against the wall as well. So I was lying awake for hours because I just I didn't know what had just happened and I wasn't going to come out of my bedroom because I did not want to see him. Mm. And then I could hear them having sex. So it was really gross. Mum didn't know that he'd done that then. Mm-mm. But it was just yuck. It made me feel really, really yuck. The next morning after he had left, after I'd had to give him a, you know, a kiss goodbye on the cheek, I went and I said to mum what he had done the night before. And she said to me, oh no, he mustn't have meant that. It would have been a mistake. And that was it. So I, um, yeah, that, that was it. It was never spoken of again. A while later, so I would have been about 11. We were staying out at his property and one night he actually came into my bed. He hopped into bed with me and he asked me to do things to him. And I was petrified. I was absolutely terrified. I had no idea what was going on. I had no idea what he wanted me to do. I remember just lying there, just wishing that it would all be over. And it was eventually. He got up and he left and I could hear him washing his hands in the bathroom. The next morning I woke up and I could hear someone in the kitchen and I was just frozen, absolutely terrified. I did not want to get out of that bed. I didn't know who it was in the kitchen. I was I didn't know if it was mum. I didn't know if it was him. But eventually I worked out that, no, it must be him. So I went and found mum and I hopped in with her. She was still asleep. And I told her again what happened. And we sat through a breakfast pretending everything that was normal. And then she made some really lame excuse about how we had to leave. So she sort of bundled us all me, my brother and sister into the car and we left. Got home and he rang and he spoke to mum and he asked to speak to me and I refused. And then um, mum and I sort of had a bit of a talk about it. I said, mum, are we going to go to the police? She said, no, 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 we're not going to the police. I said, okay, righto, well, can I have tomorrow off school? Because it was a Sunday morning. No, you must continue on as though nothing has happened. So that was it. That was my life. I had to continue on as though nothing had happened. There was no talk. There was no trying to explain what it was. There was no 
empathy or sympathy for what I was going through. I mean, it was such a secret. There was nothing. There was nothing. There was nothing. It was a huge secret, huge secret. It was never to be spoken about, never to be spoken about. Did you still have contact with him in the family? Yep. So mum continued a relationship with him and that relationship continued until I was about 16. But what brought it to a head was when I was 15. It was near the June-July holidays. And I was at home in Mitchell. Mum was in Charleville with my brother. He was playing rep football and I was at home with family friends. And this one morning, this man rang. He knew I was home with these friends and he said, oh, look, I'm going to St. George. One of the boys is playing footy. Do you want to come with me? And I was wary, but then he assured me that his other son was going to be there as well. So I thought, yeah, you know what? Why not? I'm going to be safe. I'm mm-hmm. going to be fine. I'm not going to be by myself with this person. And your whole life up until now, you've been told to act normal. Yeah. So how are you meant to say no to things that every other child gets to do in life? Yeah, you know? absolutely. Absolutely. So we went to St. George and watched the football and one of the sons went on the bus back to Roma and then the other son was with me in the car. And this man made some really lame, lame excuse about having to go back out to the property because he was working off the station at that time. He was out at the gas fields and he was on his way back out there that afternoon. And, you know, he was two or three kilometres out of his way to drop me at home, but he insisted that I come with him to his place. That's fine. The other son's still in the car. It's all good. I'm going to be safe. I'm going to be fine. We get back out there and we were literally there for, you know, 10, 15 minutes. It was hardly any time at all. And all of a sudden he was like, okay, it's time to go. And at that point I realized that I was stuck because the son wasn't getting in the car with me. It was just me and him in the car. And I felt really, really yuck, just yuck again. And we're driving along and one of the dogs had had just had pups and she jumped up on my chest and I was wearing my grandfather's um, woolen jumper that my grandmother had knitted for him and I loved that jumper. I wore it every chance I got. It was freezing cold and anyway, I had some dirt on my chest and I just brushed it off and he looked over at me and he said, oh, gee, Anna, your breasts are really filling out. You're looking really good. And I was 15 (laughs) and I just didn't say anything and I just kept looking straight ahead. We were still on his property. So I still had two more gates to get out and open and close before we were even on a road, you know, heading back to town. And I got out. So we got to the first gate, opened and closed it. And then we're driving along and he stopped the car and I – just went into, you know, my brain just froze. And he looked at me and he said, Anna, do you remember what we did that night? And I said, yes. And he said, would you like to do it again? And I just flat out, just no, no way. Fortunately, he continued driving and we made it back to Mitchell. But I had to sit in that car with him for another, you know, 30 minutes and just wondering what was going to happen what was going to happen. We were so isolated that we were in the middle of nowhere. He could have done anything. Well, he already had, he already had, you know? Yeah, he had. 
he had well and truly broken that little girl just just through you know those three separate incidents so when I got home he followed me into the house fortunately the family friends that were staying with us were there so I wasn't alone when I got home thank goodness and he reminded me that I had to call his son to tell him that the dog had had pups I'm I'm standing in the kitchen throwing back this glass of water trying not to you know absolutely fall in a heap on the floor and he still had the nerve to follow me in and tell me something that I had to do mum rang that later that evening she just had dinner with him is charleville was one of the midway points to where he was going and he didn't say a word a word to her she didn't know what he had tried to do but fortunately these friends that were at home had got out of me what had happened and they spoke to mum and she came and picked me up the next morning but it still wasn't spoken about and i don't i don't even have the words i have gone through anger like so much anger for you mm. that no one was there tears and then just then the relief when you said you told them like for the first time you're speaking outside yeah. of the family and telling so just first and foremost you are so freaking brave like oh. i know no one heard you and i know no one did anything but you spoke up every time you know like that takes so much courage for a little child to speak up against an adult and tell someone and then not to be heard and validated and have that acted upon and then be able to speak up again. Like I just, I don't know if anyone's ever told you that, but that takes so much courage. Thank you, Ali. It was tough. It was really tough. It's shit. <laughs> it's shit, yeah. So I was at boarding school during that time. I went when I was in year eight. So still only coming home on, on school holidays. The following holidays, mum told me that she'd made the decision that she was going to move to Toowoomba. But again, I wasn't to tell anyone. It was this big secret. And the reasoning was that it was to further the education of my brother and sister. So they were both, oh, Hugh was about to start high school and Emily was sort of going into grade six at that point. But yeah, that was the reason that was given for us leaving leaving Mitchell. Okay. And that was the end of your contact with him? It was the end of my contact with him, yes. However, mum did continue a relationship with him for quite some time after that. You know, I'm thinking when you told the family that were at your house, did they talk to you about it? Did they help explain some of it to you? Did they, you know? Not really. I think they were probably in a fair bit of shock as well. I know there was a lot of anger, but yeah, no, it wasn't sort of anything that we spoke about again over the years, you know, out of sight, out of mind. For everyone else, not for you. Yeah. Mum didn't want to talk about it, so we never got to talk about it. So how did that change? Because you decided later on to charge him. Like what happened over those years? And So I suppose the turning point for me was becoming a mum. I've got three beautiful children and it was tough with them. So sort of in my 20s I was diagnosed with anxiety which was fine. I managed it through, you know, medication and exercise and, and doing the right things. When you got diagnosed with anxiety, did anyone ask you about your trauma at that stage or did they just look at the symptoms that were there and treated the symptoms? 
it was a lot of symptom treatment. I did have a few sessions with a few psychologists, but, you know, I was young. I was fine. I was, there was nothing wrong with me. Well, you had to be, right? You'd been told over and over by people in your world that you just had to get on with it. Like, yeah, you don't talk about it. Nope. You don't talk about it. So I was totally fine. And then once I had my first daughter, I could sort of feel myself heading down this slippery slope towards being definitely not okay. But fortunately, unfortunately, she was a horrid sleeper. So, you know, I would clock hours and hours daily walking, getting her to sleep. So I was able to manage that anxiety and depression by that point through, you know, the amount of exercise that I was doing because, oh man, when I say she didn't sleep, she did not sleep. We would be walking the streets at four o'clock in the morning because this kid just did not sleep ever. When my son came along, he was just such a joy. He was such an easy baby compared to Vida. And I don't know, I felt good. I felt in control. Well, you were getting sleep, <laughs> you know, I was getting, I was getting sleep. Yeah. And it was second time around, like, you, you know, this yeah. ship, like, you know, this road. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm like, sweet, this is awesome. Let's go and go back for our third. And it was after Eddie, our youngest, was born that things really took a quite a turn for the worse. So I was diagnosed with major depressive disorder and anxiety and postnatal depression. Did you know at the time that you were going on a slippery slope or did someone else oh, have to point that out to you? No, no, no. I knew. I knew. I remember walking along the road one day and I'd literally taken – I had to get out of the house. My husband was at home. He was with the kids and I had to get out of that house. And I was walking along the road and – a truck was driving along and I'm like, I could just step in front of that truck. And that's when I just went, okay, this isn't good. In that moment, you were able to tell? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, I had a, a newborn at home and two other beautiful kids and a husband who has been the most amazing supportive person. And I still wasn't, I just wasn't happy. I just wanted mm. to finish it all. And what did you do once you realised that? Did you get back from the walk and talk to your husband? Did you call someone? So I went and saw my GP and she put me on a mental health plan, which was fantastic. I was put on two antidepressants and I saw a psychologist and this psychologist was probably the most wonderful person, first psychologist that I had really connected with. Mm. It's so important. Oh, it is so important. But it's it's so hard as well because, you know, these people that need help don't necessarily connect with that person straight away or, you know, they have to go to three or four different other people. It's really hard to stand back up and get out there and do it again over and over and over. Yeah, and if you don't know what it's like to have a relationship with someone and at work, you don't know what you're fighting for. Do you know what I mean? Like yeah. if, if you're going to see and you've seen two, three psychologists and they're not the right ones for you, then what on earth are you going back for? They're all going to be the same, right? That can kind of be how it is. But I love hearing you say that you went to a couple and then you found this one and it is magical. That therapy relationship when you get it right is life-saving. Oh, it is. It is definitely life-saving, absolutely life-saving. So we were in Cairns at this point and my husband was offered a job in the Northern Territory. So this is about five years ago and um, we jumped at the chance. We were so excited. We'd been up here a few times visiting family and, you know, the Northern Territory just felt like home. It was amazing. So the kids were five, 
three and Eddie was only 16 months old but had already come over here to Humpty Doo and I drove with the kids from Cairns down to Toowoomba and then up to Darwin. What a trip. With three oh kids. Oh, my goodness. On your with own. With three kids. Pretty much most of the way. <laughs> yeah. Did no one warn you about that? <laughs> uh, <laughs> Did no one have a conversation with you? <laughs> no, I I was independent. I was strong. <laughs> I, I could do this. I got to about Blackall and lost my mind. Three kids screaming. <laughs> yeah. And it was December. It was December. Oh. And, you know, out west it was about 43, 44 degrees and I'd spent a fair bit of time out at Winton and I was like, come on, kids, let's go and let me show you all the stuff that I used to do and where I used to be. And we went out to Combo Waterhole and it was, yeah, it was 46 degrees. It was three oh. o'clock in the afternoon. It was hot. And I'm like, no, nope, we're never coming back here again. You're not going to walk this <laughs> kilometre with me. <laughs> But yeah, no, it was an adventure, that's for sure. And um, Bart had actually put an offer in on this house and I hadn't seen it. So I'm driving and and the owners had accepted the offer. So I'm driving this entire way going, oh my God, what am I driving into? But it was was magic. It's just perfect. And, you know, a house is a house, but a home, it doesn't matter what your house is, Mm. if that makes sense, you know. Yeah. The walls don't define a home, the people and the environment yeah. and the tone and the memories and the experiences that defines a home. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And I do want to ask Anna, because I know you're going to go on to the next little bit, but I wanted to ask around that um, postnatal for you, because there will be people out there listening that are experiencing that right now. Did you find that it took a couple of months or did the medication and the psychologist, did you find it was a couple of weeks? Like what did that look like for you, that recovery? To be honest, Ali, I don't think I have recovered. I think I've gone from, you know, the postnatal depression now to the major depression. I'm on the highest dose of antidepressants that I can possibly take and believe that I will probably be taking that for the rest of my life. I think that the trauma that I suffered in my younger years have definitely altered the way my brain functions. I don't don't think I will ever be recovered from that from the depression, but I know it is possible. I know that, you know, some women are, they're so strong and so brave and I know that they're able to get through this. Anna, you are strong and brave. Oh, yeah, but I'm still in it. You are that woman. No, you are strong and brave. You spoke out, you did what you thought was best, you survived it, you are able to find a relationship that you are in love, you are able to have three children. I don't know what the definition of survival is, but to me, hearing your story and hearing where you are today, you are strong and you are brave. I feel broken. Yeah. I don't feel brave, I don't feel strong, I feel broken, but broken things can can get put back together. They can, and I see it all the time in therapy. It just takes time. You spent decades feeling like those pieces were getting shattered and and to glue them back together into a place that you feel whole again and feel, you know, anchored again takes time. Yeah, yeah, definitely, definitely. And it sounds like you've only really just started working on it when we talk about that. You said it was your third child. How old is she now? So Eddie is... 
six. Yeah. I don't know. She's my third child. She's breathing. She's alive. I'm doing my job. <laughs> I'm the same. I'm like, birthday? I'm not sure. Ask my father. <laughs> yeah, yeah, pretty much, pretty much. So now that the kids are getting older and they're all about the same age as what – well, my eldest is the same age as what I was when I was first abused. Scary. Oh, it's terrifying. It hits home, doesn't it? Mm. Yep. Absolutely. And, you know, she's wanting to go to sleepovers with her friends and, oh, no, sweetheart, I'm sorry, you can't go. Mm. Well, why not, mum? And I decided very early on that I was going to talk to my children. I wasn't going to hide any secrets from them. For them to be safe, they need to know the truth. So, I remember this one day Vita asked to go and have this sleepover with this family that I didn't know all that well. And I said no, and she got so angry at me. And why, mum, why? It's not fair. Everyone else is. Why can't I? I said, darling, because when I was a little girl, something awful happened to me. I said, my mum couldn't protect me from it, but I can protect you. I can make sure that it doesn't happen to you. And since sort of then she sort of gained a bit of an understanding. I mean, obviously our conversations are all age appropriate. It's important to have the conversations that we are not having enough of them. And I don't, age appropriate, non-age but like we need to have the conversations. Of everyone listening today, how many of you can raise your hand and put your other hand on your heart and say, I've had the conversations with my children and I've had them really well and I've had them often and they know they know how to keep themselves safe and they know they can talk to me. And if we can't do that, we need to do something about it today. That is how we stop abuse. A hundred percent, one hundred percent. My children know that their body is their own. They do not have to give anyone a hug if they don't want to. They do not have to kiss anyone on the cheek if they don't want to. They can talk to you if they want to about anything. There's no conversation you can't have. That is a hundred percent correct. So my kids know that I am their safe space and their father as well. We are their safe people and we will listen to them. Yeah. Always. Yeah. And take action. Yep. I mean, the statistics are pretty, they're pretty terrifying. I think it's, you know, one in five children are sexually assaulted. I think it's a bit higher than that at the moment. It's pretty horrific. And just to say that we know of, that's that we know of. How many kids are not telling the story? How many kids are not speaking up? How many parents are sweeping it under the carpet? How many uncles and aunties are pretending it never happened? So those statistics are that we know of. That's why it's so important that we have these conversations. That's why, Anna, you're on here today and we're having this conversation. Yeah, absolutely. And I honestly cannot put into words how important it is that these children are listened to. Mm. If they are made feel uncomfortable in any situation, you listen to that that child and you take on board what they say and you help them and you help them process it. And if that means making yourself feel uncomfortable because you have to call someone out on their really shitty behavior, illegal behavior, and go to the police, then you know what? Suck it up and do it. Because if you don't, you're creating a lifetime of trauma, a lifetime of recovery, a lifetime of anxiety and depression. And like we're talking about, when your kids get to the age that you're abused, it's, it brings it all back up again. You can relive it. You can, the fear, it's like it was yesterday, you know, it's, yeah. that will pass as well. That will pass that fear when you're youngest, but you've still got two more kids to come through the ranks at that age. You yeah. know, like yep. it's, you're in it, you're in the thick of it for a little while. And 
Yeah, I mean, I absolutely am an advocate for having conversations with your children, having conversations with your friends, having conversations with your family, like have it as an open conversation about this at the table. Yep. If you can't talk adult to adult, how do you talk adult to child? Exactly. Exactly. Because these little kids are our future and if they aren't treated like the little people that they are, I mean, yes, they're, they're children, but they're still people. They're still humans. They're, they still have – their feelings are valid. Their emotions are valid. And they're still being abused. I, that's what the part I don't get. Like they're still experiencing assault. So, yes, they might be little people, but we know they're experiencing assault at a really young age. So we have a choice to make. There's a choice. Do we skill them up and educate them and give them the tools and strategies that they need in that moment to get out or to have the conversation? Or do we just – just hope and pray that our child's never going to be in that situation. Oh, you God, know? No. well, I know what I'm doing. Yeah. And I will continue to do it every single day until they are safe and then I will have it with my grandchildren. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, Anna, I know that this isn't the end of the story. Like there's still so much more no, to this story. A lot to go, haven't we? Yeah, we do. We do. So do you want to tell us what happened? You know, so now you said that you started to feel like you were sliding after you had your three children and completely understandable, can I just say, like, you know, hearing your story, I know you feel broken, but I was thinking as you said that your daughter is at the age that you were. And when we tell this next part of the story, you're still in it. Like you are in it. Like do you want to tell us about what's happened? Yeah. So last year, in June last year, I returned to work. So first time back at full-time work after having my babies. So I was 10 years out of the workforce almost, thereabouts. And that was a lifesaver for me because I was able to get out of my my head. I had something else to focus on and was able to get a little bit of confidence back. I wasn't just mum. I was a valued part of the team that I was part of at work and, you know, started to feel really, really good, but the depression was still there. And I don't, I don't know. I don't know how you feel good, but feel so awful as well, but it happens. Mm. Still quite suicidal. I wish my kids could grow up the way I grew up, you know, with, you know, shooting guns and slug guns and, but I couldn't, I can't have a gun in my house, could never have a gun in my house because I do know what I would have done if there was one there. Mm. And it got to a point last year where I was just broken. So on the outside, I was happy and enjoying my job and successful and you know, managing the household and husband and kids and it all was good. But in the inside, I was just shattered. And we had my mum and some other family members visiting. And this one night, I just lost my mind at her. We were, I was just so angry at mum. I'd asked her something and it was completely, you know, insignificant or unrelated. And she didn't give me the answer that I wanted. And we ended up having this full-on confrontation about what had happened when I was a little girl down in the chook pen. And it was confronting. I said a lot of horrific things to mum and mum said a lot of nasty things to me as well. And I just kept asking her, why, why did you let that happen? Why, mum, why, why? I need to know why. And all she could sort of say to me was, oh, I fucked up. I said, yes, but why? 
and she said that she was just so terrified of being alone that she stayed with him. So I could feel my resentment built toward her. I was so angry, so angry. But she she decided that, no, well, this time I'm going to support you, Anna, and what are we going to do? I said, well, I don't know what to do, mum. I, I, I don't know what to do. I said, I can't talk to anyone else anymore. I've, I'm all talked out. I can't go and see another psychologist up here in the Northern Territory to actually get a doctor's appointment to get to that next step, to get to the third step is bloody hard, you know. Mm. I mean, it's tough everywhere. It is really tough everywhere, but it is it is very hard up here. It's tough in the cities where we have 100 psychs or counsellors, let alone where you've only got one or you might not even have one, you know. it's Yeah. Really, yeah, yeah. Oh, the shortfall. Oh, that's a whole other conversation yeah, that we could have probably. Yeah, <laughs> You know, you were saying about your mum and how she's stepping up to the plate now to do something even though it does feel a little late and it – also, you're like, well, I'm all talked out, you know, so what What are the options? Yeah, so I told her that she needed to find out what we had to do. So when she went home, she went and saw a solicitor and he advised her as best as he could about our avenues of what we could do to have this person, you know, charged, hopefully brought to justice. He recommended that we go through Brave Hearts. Which is a foundation, Brave Hearts, for anyone that's listening that has experienced any kind of sexual assault, look up Brave Hearts. They've got so many resources, counsellors, support. They're amazing. Oh, incredible. So I was able to submit my story through Brave Hearts and they were able to pass it on to the police. I didn't want to go to the police here in the Northern Territory because the Territory is my safe place. I had to be a little bit removed from what was going to happen. So, I eventually got a phone call from a detective in Roma and we started the process of investigating my allegations. I gave all my statements. Mum gave a statement. You know, the one or two people she told gave statements. And over about 12 months, we built our case up and, you know, the end was so close. I was you know, so excited. And we eventually, he he was charged. In August this year, he was charged with two counts of indecent dealings with a, of a child under 16. And that was the most extraordinary day of my life. I felt seen. I felt validated. I felt alive. I was happy. We had ice cream for dinner with the kids to celebrate. The next day was a bit of a was it a bit of a blur? I was still on a high. And then the following day, a Saturday, I was at with a friend. I looked at my phone as I hopped back into the car. I had my kids with me. Bart was my husband was out fishing, I think. So we were in town with catching up with this friend and I had three missed calls from my brother. And I rang him. I was in the car on speakerphone. And he just said, Anna, he killed himself. So the day after he was charged, he committed suicide. And I got left with nothing. There was just nothing. There was no admission of guilt. So I, that when the police 
were there charging him. He denied everything. However, he could remember specific details about the days around the incidents. And, you know, you don't remember stuff like that. If it was just a normal Saturday night or a normal Sunday morning, you don't remember anything about it. But he could remember certain things and details. He didn't leave a note. He left nothing. So almost 30 years of heartache and pain for absolutely nothing. I know it feels like that, Anna, but they heard you. Yeah, they did. And your mum spoke up for the first time and the people she told spoke up. Yeah. Yeah. It's so shit though. Like when you were saying that again, that anger just boils up, doesn't it? It's just like. Yep. And then just to have absolutely everything taken away was just a lot of people said to me, but Anna, you didn't want to go through the the court system. You didn't want to have to deal with that. But I was so ready. I was so ready to do that. And and nothing. There's nothing anyone can say. You know, we can say he can't hurt you, he can't hurt anyone anymore, but you chose that fight so that you could see it through to the end and to feel like it being cut short just feels like you've been ripped off, right? Like you don't get oh. to have your day in court. You don't get to have your day on the stand and say, fuck you, this is what yeah. this is what happened and this is what's happened since and this is not okay. Your behaviour is- was not okay. So not only has he, you know, taken that away from from me, but, you know, what about his family as well? They didn't know what sort of person he was. They didn't know that he had done these things. It's not just my life. It's a lot of people's lives that have just been Destroyed once again. Yeah. And Anna – You mentioned to me before we came on this interview about your mum and about the process around your feelings towards your mum and, you know, it might be good for us to have a bit of a conversation about how that's changed, shifted, moulded and where you're at with that now. I love my mum dearly. She's all I've got parent-wise. I mean, I've got wonderful, wonderful people in my life but she's still my mum and over time – especially over the last sort of five years or so with these having my own children, my resentment towards her has grown. And I look at my kids and think, how could any mother let that happen and let it continually happen? So, yeah, our relationship has always been quite good, but there's always – I've always had this simmering of resentment and – anger towards her. Unfortunately, unfortunately, mum has supported other people who have done the same sort of thing as what was done to me. The circumstances were different, but, you know, they were still convicted of child sex offences and mum continually was able to support that person. And I just was getting angrier and angrier and angrier. And it sort of came to a head a few weeks ago and I I just decided I could not have this person in my life anymore. I could not have my mother in my life because I was just so angry and broken and hurt. But I've sort of, over the last couple of days, I've come to the realisation that it is 
it is easy to be bitter. It is easy to be spiteful, but it's not the way that I want to live my life. And if I want to get past what has happened, I need to learn how to forgive. And the first person I need to learn to forgive is my mum because what she didn't do was um, oh, it's completely unacceptable. But how many times do I have to make her say sorry before I accept it? And she said sorry. And I think it takes a bigger person to forgive than to hold on to it. And I want to be that bigger person. I don't want to be bitter. I don't want to be angry. And I, the only way that I can heal is to let it go. Don't get me wrong. I'm still fucking angry. <laughs> <laughs> I'm still really, really angry. But mum became my punching bag. She was the one that knew it was happening and was still alive. He was the one that did it and he took the coward's way out. So I couldn't do anything to him. So it all came back onto mum. And she's sorry. Is there anything that you want to say to your mum if she's listening to this podcast? Mum knows that I love her. She knows that I, I love her with all of my heart. And despite everything that we have gone through, we are still, we are still family and she's still my mum and we all make monumental mistakes, sometimes bigger than others, and I just don't want to be that person that holds on to it for the rest of my life because I am never, ever, ever going to get past this if I do. And it's not serving you anymore, Anna. I've listened to no. your story. I've been sitting here listening to your story for the first time and I know for you and you talked about feeling like you're broken but I'm seeing you flourishing. Like it doesn't feel like that right now but let me tell you as an observer, you're like a seed that's come out of the ground and you're a little shoot and you're about to grow into this massive tree. You have done the work. I can't say that to you enough. You have walked the mile. You have shown so much courage and you have taken so much action and you have stood up and you have just told the world your story and everyone that's listening is a witness to your experience and this is your moment to shine. You don't need to have this holding you back anymore. You don't need to live with this like a cape around you. It's your life now and that is what you're talking about. When you're talking about forgiveness, when you are you are at that breakthrough point and this is you are going to skyrocket from here. Yeah, I think I will because I can't let it hold me back anymore. You're the one that's suffering at night. You're the one that's suffering in your head. You're the one that isn't living the life that you deserve to live. They're doing their thing. Like they're still living there. He's not here anymore. Your mum's still doing her everyday thing, but the one that's suffering is you. Yeah, and for the sake of my three children and for my husband who has been my biggest supporter, I need to move on. I need to grow into that that little tree and, you know, with the amount of rain we're having up here at the moment, it's not going to take long for for those first branches to to appear. And you haven't felt that before, you know. You don't know what that looks like. When we were talking about before when the counsellors and you try a counsellor and try another one and you just don't know what you're fighting for, I know what that looks like and I stand here today in front of you and say with tears in my eyes, you go get it, girl. Like this is your time. 
This is your time and you were there. So, you know, I just so much love and support and there's so many of us cheering you on. You know, whenever you have those dark moments or dark days, I want you to think back to this moment and know that we are all beside you and holding you strong through those moments. Thank you. Thank you. I have felt a real shift in these last couple of days. Mm, I can hear that. I'm much calmer. Now that I've let go of that hate and that bitterness and resentment, particularly towards mum, I just, I do feel like a new person. Mm. And I think it's important for people to know that who have been through something like this, that one day it will be okay. It may not be fantastic. You're still going to have bad days. We were meant to be in court this week for our first hearing. And it never happened. And that was a really bad day for me. Yeah. There's going to be ups and downs, but it's going to be okay. And is there a message that you want to say to your children? My Vita, my Jono, and my Eddie, I know things have been tough for them, for you, dealing with a mother that has severe depression. But I am trying my hardest every single day. You three are the reason that I get out of bed every single day. And without you, and I mean, no pressure or anything, guys, because I you know, love you a lot, but without you, I wouldn't, I wouldn't be able to be here. And Bart, wow. Oh, gosh, I don't know how many times he could have walked away, Ali. I just, I mean, anyone who, who lives with a mental illness – it's like being in a ship with, you know, 20 meter waves. It's up and down and round and round. And it's just an absolute roller coaster. But he has stuck by me through every single step of it. And he deserves a bloody gold medal. We might send him one. <laughs> Maybe. What about the audience? What can we do to either support you or what is one action step each listener can take today that's going to make it worth your time coming on here and telling your story? There's one thing we can do to support you or others that are going through it. I want people to listen to their kids, not dismiss them. If they want to tell you something, and I mean, I'm not just talking about, you know, abuse or stuff like that. If they want to tell you about their day, if they want to cuddle, just give them the time because that's what they deserve. They deserve our time and our ears and our hearts. Anna, is there anything that I haven't asked you or anything that we haven't yet spoken about in the podcast that you wanted to say before we finish up? I want to thank my cousin, Wally. She was the first person that I told. We were 15 and about 16. Wally's a year older than me and we were sitting outside of the boarding house at school and she was the first person that I told what had happened to me and she has been there for me every step of the way. She's a bloody legend. She's, you know, she's she's incredible. She held my secret because I swore her to secrecy as well. She held my secret for as long as I did and has never once judged or questioned or made me feel like it was my fault. She's just the best. Everyone needs a Wally. <laughs> we all need a Wally. Wally's the best. <laughs> And Anna, I love to finish the podcast with asking, is there someone or something or an event that's happened in your world lately that has truly made you belly laugh? 
Oh my goodness. So not so much of a belly laugh, but it has shown me that I do have some strength in there somewhere. So I grew up absolutely terrified of snakes, dangerously, dangerously terrified of snakes. And, you know, we live in the Northern Territory now, <laughs> lots of snakes. And I was taking some groceries into the house this week and I opened the glass sliding door and I felt something plop on my head. And I looked down and it was a snake. <gasps> it was, oh my God. Oh my God. It was a snake. It was a little baby pythony thing, but it was a snake. Did you scream? No. I don't know what I don't I don't know what's happened to me. Old Anna would have absolutely lost her mind. But this Anna, she bent down and picked it up. What? I know. Carried it out into the bush. Oh my Anna, you have arrived, girl. <laughs> this is a different Anna. <laughs> I was like who am I? I, was, I, was, I, was, I must admit, I was very, very proud of myself for being so brave. Oh, I, nah, no way, mate. No way. You are on your own with carrying out the baby pythons. Yeah. So, I, yeah, that was, that was pretty massive for me, to be honest. For anyone other than a snake catcher. And I thank you so much for coming on today. What an hour we have had having conversations. I hope that people take away as much as I did listening to your story. We've spoken about it, but the courage, the inspiration, the honesty. For those that don't know, standing up publicly and telling your story and having the world witness your experience is massive. So thank you so much for coming on. Thank you, Ali. And the only way that we're ever going to stop this child sexual abuse is to talk about it. And if my story can help one person and one child, then I'll be happy with that. So thank you. I don't know about you, but I rode each and every one of those emotions that Anna described today. The anger, the frustration, the fear, the sadness, the grief. When I was listening to a story, I just kept thinking, what an incredible woman that stands before me here today. I wish Anna could see her own strengths and her own grit. Today, we discuss the trauma in detail, and there are many parts of that story that could trigger you personally. I want you to take a moment to think about how you'll ground and anchor yourself after listening to this episode. Does that look like going for a walk, a bath, perhaps debriefing with a friend? Maybe you need to send a message, maybe pop it in challenges at Changes Facebook group to Anna or DM me and I can pass it on to her. It might be calling Lifeline on 131114. Sometimes when we hear other people's stories, our hearts cry out for love. We resonate so much with what they're saying that we find that our world becomes a little bit shaky. This is why it's so important to take a moment to ground. I'm going to take each of you through a little breath exercise, so stay on if this is helpful. Otherwise, pop off and we will see you next week. For those that are staying on for the breath work, I just want you to take a moment wherever you are, sitting, standing, walking, and start to soften your gaze, maybe closing those eyes or looking down towards the ground and placing your left hand over your heart as you begin to notice your breath. Just observing. You don't need to change it in any way. Simply notice. Listen to the sounds around you. 
What can you hear in the background? As you start to become more aware of your breath, I invite you to allow the exhale to lengthen. As you take a few more deep breaths just like this, in and out. I want you to repeat to yourself in your mind's eye, I am strong. I am here. I am strong. I am here. And when you're ready, you can start to notice those sounds around you again. Maybe start to wiggle your fingers and your toes. You can slowly start to flutter those eyelids open. And as you walk through today, I want you to know that you are unique with your own story, that there is no one in this world like you, and it's time for you to shine brightly. The flame within you is strong, and you can use this to guide you through rough waters and daily challenges. I look forward to seeing you all next week on Monday morning. Thank you everyone for listening and taking the time out of your day. I believe we can learn so much from connecting with other people's experiences and stories. I hope you've gained some strategies and insight from today's episode. You can gain more by joining our Facebook group, Challenges That Change Us, or next week we will return with another episode. 